so um, this evening and for the next uh, uh, two evenings on which I'll be talking, I want to take uh, a look at some of the central metaphors that we find in the early Buddhist uh, texts, metaphors that I'm sure some of you are familiar with. The three that I've chosen are the metaphor of the raft, the metaphor of the arrow, and the metaphor of the city. So this evening, we're going to look at the raft. But before I begin, let's just think for a little about the power of metaphor. When we hear a metaphor, like the practice of the Dharma is like a raft, or it's like extracting an arrow, or it's like creating a city, as soon as I mention those words, raft, arrow, city, I suspect that a picture appears in your mind. It's going to be different for every one of you, depending on your own experience of rafts, of arrows, and of cities. But immediately, a picture, and very probably, stories connected to that picture, maybe emotional connections, um, maybe other people, friends or acquaintances who are connected to these images, also appear in your mind. Images, metaphors, parables have the power to evoke immediately a world. Now, what we find not only in early Buddhism, but we find exactly the same in the Gospels uh, of Christianity, in the teachings of Jesus, is we find that there are a lot of metaphors and parables. And scholars would argue that the presence of a metaphor or a parable suggests an early origin of that teaching. And one of the reasons for that is because in pre-literate cultures, where teachings and uh, discourses were delivered, they could not rely upon abstract concepts, philosophical ideas or psychological ideas. But they had to speak a language that would um, address the imagination of their listeners. People probably without much education, maybe not even literate. So this suggests that these metaphors not only have a potency to speak to us today through the imagination, through images, but also might well be 
indicative of something that goes back to the very origins or the source of that tradition. I remember when I was first beginning to study Buddhism in India, um, I was with uh, the community around the Dalai Lama, I was receiving teachings uh, translated from Tibetan, but at the same time there was a library um, of of English books on Buddhism, which I'd never read anything on Buddhism before, and I remember picking up a couple of introductory books and the things that stayed with me were actually these parables, these metaphors. I remember very vividly the metaphor of the raft, the metaphor of the arrow, maybe not the city. And then I became rather surprised that when Buddhism was presented to me um, by a living Tibetan Lama, these metaphors were never mentioned. That um, instead, we received very, you know, very well thought out, very well developed doctrines and uh, philosophies and psychological theories, but all at a relatively high level of abstraction. Intellectually, very engaging. But I felt even then a puzzle, why don't we hear these stories? Why don't we hear these metaphors? And this is also something that's been observed by historians of religion, is that religious discourse tends to start with parables and images, but as it becomes more and more an established religion, when it starts having professional theologians and others who are trying to work out exactly what this religion means, the language, not surprisingly, becomes more abstract, becomes more conceptual, and becomes more theoretical. We see likewise in Zen, which was a break with that over-intellectualization of Buddhism, it too returned to something very primary, just the act of sitting. And once again, when you read particularly the early uh, uh, discourses or sayings of the Chinese Chang masters, once again we're back to concrete images. Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? The cypress tree in the courtyard. That may not, strictly speaking, be a metaphor or a parable. But nonetheless, the language has shifted away from abstract theory and come right back to concrete experience. In this particular case, I suspect, because there was a cypress tree growing in the courtyard, and that's what the teacher wanted you to pay attention to, not some Buddhist theory but to come to terms with being here and now, in this place, in this concrete world. So let's have a look at the raft metaphor and try to unpack it um, in a language of our own. One of the 
one of the uh, principles underlying this secular approach to the Dharma is to go back to origins and try to rethink the Dharma afresh in a language of our seculum, our age, our time, our world. So let's start with a very contemporary image. Imagine a person who is um, fleeing uh, a country where they can no longer live safely or a country that doesn't allow them to really fulfill their potential and they make a decision to leave and they pack up what they can carry on their backs and they set off for a better life and they go off into the Sahara Desert maybe and they, go in, they put themselves in situations that are unknown they put themselves in situations of great risk of potential danger and they'll constantly be hitting obstacles so let's imagine that one of our refugees comes to the bank of a wide river and there's nobody around to help there is no boat there is no bridge um, there is just an expanse of water and in the distance they can see the far shore. Now that's how the metaphor of the raft begins. A person on a journey arrives at the bank of a wide river and there's no boat and there's no bridge. Now when we read that today, possibly the experience that we might immediately think of is that of refugees. This is their situation. Now how does the person then deal with that situation? The motive may be driven by a strong sense of urgency, maybe with a great deal of courage. The person has to figure out how to get across. We're assuming for the sake of convenience that they don't know how to swim. So what they'll do is they'll try to find whatever happens to be lying around, maybe some branches, maybe some reeds that they pick from the riverbank, nowadays maybe some empty plastic bottles, who knows. It doesn't really matter. The only thing that they're that matters at this point is that this material will float, that it won't sink. And they tie all this stuff together and create a raft. And once they've got the raft more or less, you know, well tied up and ready to go, they'll push it into the water, they'll walk after it, and then they'll lie down on top of it and they'll paddle with their hands and feet until they get to the far shore. By which time, of course, the raft is probably already beginning to disintegrate. It might be half sunk under the surface of the water, but it has got them across. Now, the latter bit of that story 
paddling with one's hands and feet, getting to the far shore. That's exactly what we find in the early Buddhist parable of the raft. But again, we can imagine it happening today. Now, what this suggests very much is that this is a journey in which we are kind of on our own. Uh, There's no one else with this person. There's no one around to help. And there's no sight of anybody on the far shore. It also shows that we need to be resourceful. In other words, we need to figure out how to solve this problem with our own native intelligence. And so in this case, you put together a raft from whatever materials happen to be to hand. It also, I think, implies a a certain kind of imagination again. We have to dream up a solution. We can't conceptually figure it out. Chances are we'll get an idea as a flash and then we'll try to enact that. So we get across to the other shore. And once we get to the other shore, we leave the raft behind and we continue on our journey. So the raft has served its purpose. In fact, it might not be much use anymore. Uh, It might have fallen to bits. But it served its purpose and on we go. Now, in the Buddhist version of this, the Buddha asks his monks, what would you think, monks, if that person were to carry that raft on their shoulders? Because this raft has served such an important service to them. It's got them across the river. Therefore, they should hold on to it in case they might need it again. But clearly the question is rather absurd. Why would you burden yourself with a waterlogged mass of branches and reeds and so forth? It would actually hinder your journey rather than help it. So clearly the the message of the parable is to, once the raft has served its purpose, you leave it behind and off you go, unencumbered. Now the Buddha then compares the raft to the Dharma. And he says, just as you would uh, use a raft to cross over a river, In the same way, you use the Dharma to help you get through the problems of life. But you don't use it for the purpose of grasping. In other words, you don't become attached to the Dharma because it has done so much good for you. You let that go too. In fact, the the parable ends with the Buddha saying... um, Uh, not only should we let go of unskillful states, akusala dhamma, non-skillful dharmas, we should even let go of skillful dharmas, kusala dharma. In other words, the dharmas that actually do us good. 
we're aspiring, therefore, for a life that may be much helped and supported and directed by our practice of the Dharma, but we must be very careful not to turn the Dharma into an object of attachment, into an object of reverence, perhaps, something we put on a pedestal, something we regard with unconditional um, uh, reverence. No, that has to go too. Now this, you know, could sound as though Buddhism is trying to undermine itself. It's saying, look, here are these teachings, here are these practices, you know, make good use of them, but once they've done their job, then drop it. Let go of Buddhism, let go of the Dharma, and carry on with your journey. This is perhaps one of the reasons why this parable is not so widely taught. It might seem to go against the interests of those who very much want the Dharma to be something that you, you hold on to, that you practice, that you don't let go of, etc., etc. Et so there's something quite radical in this parable. And possibly that's why it sticks in the imagination. It's uncomfortable at one level. Now, I think it's also worthwhile to um, consider this metaphor as a way of coming to terms with one's solitude. The metaphor is clearly about a single person overcoming a problem and then carrying on with her journey. She's alone. She's without any community. And as a refugee, that's all the more poignant, all the more experienced as a deep kind of isolation, perhaps, being cut off from your family, friends, community, country. These are the moments in which you begin to feel profoundly alone, Let's flash back to the Buddha's time. What was the conditions in India, in northeast India, when this teaching may first have been given? It's a time of great upheaval and change. It's a period where the economy of the Gangetic Basin, which until then had been almost entirely agrarian, in other words, farming, small villages, little confederations of clans and families, but basically a, a vast um, scattered population of small communities. At the Buddha's time, around the time that he was born and lived, that economy had generated sufficient surplus that other possibilities of living had become possible. In other words, they were producing more than they needed just to survive. They had surplus goods that could be then sold or bartered or traded. And that was the economic trigger for an enormous social, political, 
transformation of the whole of that part of India. It was a period where we begin to see the emergence of cities for the first time. Remember that, this is important. We're going to look at the metaphor of the city. The first cities in that part of India were built around the time of the Buddha. Before him, there were no, no cities at all. We also have, because of this surplus, the ability of powerful men to start um, training and keeping armies. In other words, there was enough men to be able to take off the fields and train as soldiers, which then was the basis of that ruler's expanding political power. So also at the Buddha's time, we see the emergence of the political phenomenon of monarchy. There was no monarchy before then. Remember, the Buddha wasn't a prince, wasn't born in a palace, didn't have a father as a king. That's all imagined later on. He was the senior eldest son of, a, um, of an oligarch who ran with other leading families, a community of farmers, basically. But around this time, the first expanded monarchies had arisen. They were founded, they were centered in walled, fortified cities. They had standing armies. They had the first kings. They had also, at exactly this time, began minting coins, which could be used much more efficiently in trade. They were creating networks of, of um, communication. Um, merchants, craftspeople were all moving around, uh, finding these new livelihoods and, for many, perhaps considerable wealth. All of this is the social political situation in which people were beginning to leave the rural backwaters, as we might say today, and they were heading for a better life in these newly emerging cities. So the parable of the raft, we can now understand much more clearly as the parable of people leaving probably a rural existence, and heading off for a better life. This was what the Buddha was addressing. He was teaching his Dharma to people who could relate to that experience. The the parable would have made little sense a hundred years earlier when people weren't doing that. But at that time in India, this is what was going on. It was economic mobility, social mobility, political change, and new possibilities opening up. Some of the people who left their village um, homes did so in pursuit of wisdom, of understanding, of truth. They became monks, samanas, wanderers, philosophers. Others sought wealth. They became merchants, traders, and some sought power. They became soldiers. They became officials in 
royal courts and so on. And the Dharma was not just being taught to the monks, the people who left home to pursue a spiritual life. It was addressing the situation of all of these people across society who were leaving home for homelessness. They were stepping out of a well-established network of relationships in which everybody knew their place, in which the seasonal pattern of life repeated itself year upon year, generation upon generation. We even find early Buddhist texts in the Vinaya, the monastic rule, uh, describing their routine, repetitive lives in exactly that way, as something to be let go of, something to be, to be transcended. Buddhist tradition tends to only consider the monks and that the Dharma was taught for them. But there's plenty of evidence to show that the Dharma was basically addressed to this new condition of society. It was addressed to people who for the first time in their lives perhaps found themselves alone, found themselves called upon to use their own resourcefulness in solving problems. The bank of the river, you have got to figure it out. How do you get across? To activate their imagination, to not get attached to the things that help them on the way, but to let them go too. And as the parable in the suttas concludes, in order that they can continue on their journey. That's the parable. Now, we find a word very much um, used in all Buddhist schools, and that is the idea of taking refuge. Now, this, I think, also has something very much to do with this parable, particularly when we imagine this parable as one about the refugee. A refugee, after all, is defined by the fact that they take refuge. So why does Buddhism use exactly this language? I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. That's the, the formal statement of commitment to a new life. One in which you leave behind, in this case, your self, self-centered preoccupations, your attachments, your hatreds, your fears, etc., etc., etc. You leave that behind in order to um, focus on what matters most for you, symbolized by the Buddha, awakening, fulfillment, integration. You can use any of those ideas to uh, express what this symbol means. You take refuge in the Dharma, in other words, the practice itself. Again, remembering that you do a practice, it does its job, you let it go. You find another practice, it does its job, you let it go. That's the process. And you take refuge in a sangha. 
But Sangha here doesn't mean some kind of church or temple. At the Buddha's time, there were no such things. Sangha refers to the community of friends and acquaintances, companions, who are likewise on this journey and can support you in your journey. But at the Buddha's time, these communities actually only met together fairly rarely, particularly in the monsoon. Uh, when they couldn't walk around anymore, they needed to gather together in parks and groves. And there they would effectively discuss what they were doing. The senior figures would probably give talks. They would have discussions. They would meditate together. Effectively, what we're doing now. The modern-day concept of the week-long retreat is, a, is shorter than the monsoon rains uh, in India, which go on for about three months. But it's the same idea. Uh, we basically um, gather together at places like this and we focus all our energies on our own inner life, our meditation practice, questions that we may have bought, brought that we value, discussions and so forth and so on. This is very similar. And then we disperse. So not only does it seem that the Buddha felt the Dharma to be provisional. Provisional means it only, it's useful only up to a certain point. It serves a purpose. It's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. In other words, um, once it's done its job, you can let it go. Sangha is the same. In other words, Sangha too, these, these gatherings, these informal co comings together are provisional. They're useful they, to the point that they serve their end and once that end has been served, we all disperse. And that is how the early Buddhist community lived in India. Uh, they gather together and then off they go. All separately into different parts of the of the areas where they lived. So in that sense, um, we're all refugees. If we think of ourselves taking refuge, and again, that might apply to some of us, it may not apply to others, but if we translate it into our more secular language, taking refuge basically is living is taking our lives seriously and seeking to live according to what we hold to be our deepest values. In other words, leaving behind a life which is governed by social convention, that's governed by what our parents have told us to do, that's governed by other conditional pressures that society and politics and religion have foisted upon us, um, and it's also about letting go of certain psychological fears and attachments that um, hold us back from really making any risk in our lives. We're, 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 we're particularly attached to the idea of, of security, material security. And the idea of going off into the unknown is kind of scary. 
So, if we think of taking refuge as basically making a conscious decision to live our lives differently, to live according to those values that we really cherish, that also entails a letting go, a disconnecting with what has kind of uh, defined us in the past, but at some point in our life, we realized that wasn't actually fulfilling us. We needed to make a break. And I'd be very surprised that there's anyone in this room who can't relate to that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. There are much more fun things to do than sit on silent meditation retreats. So we're here because even though it's, we have to make perhaps a bit of a sacrifice at times, we have to put up with things that are maybe not totally comfortable, but we stick at it because the benefits outweigh the disadvantages. Uh, there's something going on here that's hopefully meeting a much deeper need than my mere creature comforts of having a single room, for example. Now, when I gave this talk not long ago in Austria, um, someone from the audience uh, spoke up and said, look, you're treating this whole refugee crisis as something just for you know, your middle-class religious thinking. You're not really acknowledging the pain and the distress of these people. Uh, you're taking their experience to illustrate some religious point, which is a fair enough criticism, I thought. But then an, a lady stood up and uh, she said, I am a refugee. She had um, come to Austria some years before from one of the stands, I think Kyrgyzstan or something. I, I'm sorry to be so ignorant of these places. But one of those uh, former Soviet republics in Central Asia. And she and her family had fled uh, as conflict broke out after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what she said really touched me. She said, I agree with you, speaking to me, which was a great relief. <laughs> she said, my experience, in the experience of many of us refugees, was not just one of suffering and despair. It was one of hope and optimism. That was the spirit that moved us. And once we set out on this journey, of course there were moments when, when we were frightened and insecure, but much stronger than that, what in fact kept us going was hope and the possibility of a better future elsewhere. And she said it was a very positive uh, human yearning that brought these people to make these difficult decisions, to undertake these journeys, and to start anew. And I find it interesting that that's not the way that refugees and migrants are treated in our media today. They're only treated as poor, desperate, suffering people, which of course is also true. But we only focus on the dark side, on the negative side. We don't 
see these people as actually reaching out for a fulfillment that gives them a great sense of hope, optimism, and purpose. I think that's important if we're going to have a more rounded picture. I think it also works far better in terms of using this as a metaphor. The refugee is a metaphor of the person who goes to refuge for the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. In other words, this is a practice that is likewise at times very difficult. It can be even painful. It can be rather revealing in a way that we'd rather not know. We learn stuff about ourselves. It's not maybe terribly, terribly good. At the same time, this is a practice that is also shot through with a sense of of optimism, a sense of hope, a sense that this is a way that could really improve the quality, not only of my own life, but that, that of others as well. This is a very positive thing. It gives us a great sense of, of vitality, of purpose. But the two go hand in hand. You know, the, 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 the excitement and the joy that you get in opening up new vistas in your life is also going to have a shadow of you know, insecurity, perhaps, from having let go or having you know, left behind so many other things that we valued. So the metaphor, I think, works very well. If we tease this out more concretely, then let's consider how this broad metaphor crossing a river on a raft and then continuing one's journey might be a good general kind of picture to give us a, an orientation to our own lives now. But I think it's helpful also to bring it, to make it more specific. What are the kinds of riverbank situations we actually find ourselves in? Let's, I mean, we live all of us, I suspect, in comfortable conditions with adequate housing and food and clothing and money in the bank and all that stuff. So what are our refugee situations? I'll just give some examples from my own life. Let's start with a simple one. Leading another retreat. Coming to Gaia House... <laughs> Gonna, I, again, I know some of the people I, who are here, I know, I, I know you. There are, of course, about 20 of you from the Bodhi College course, so I can be fairly safe that you're going to be there. But there's going to be a bunch of people, most of whom I don't know. I've no idea how this is going to play out over the next six or seven days. I don't know whether there's going to be some crisis or some problem. Um, who knows? It's an unknown. And I'm not entirely alone. I have Martine, we have Tony, um, we have the staff, all of that kind of stuff. But when I'm sitting on this chair or when I'm preparing my talk in the room beforehand, I do feel subjectively that I'm completely on my own. It's only me who can do what I'm doing right now, given the constraints of this situation. 
and I have to figure out how I'm going to get through this 45 minutes. I've only got six to go. <laughs> so far, so good. Am I going to dry up? Am I going to say something stupid? Am I... And whatever, all of that stuff goes through your head. And I don't prepare with lots of notes. I'm not reading you a paper. I'm just following some bullet points on my iPad. I don't know where these words come from. I'm not even entirely sure what I'm going to say next. But that's a bit like swimming across the river on an improvised raft of some kind. And then when I get to the other shore, I can leave this talk behind. But of course I don't. I think, oh, that was a good talk. <laughs> I can do that one again. <laughs> It'll never be quite the same. And as I've already admitted, I have done a talk very similar to this in the past. So, you know, that's cheating perhaps. But nonetheless, you can see what I mean, I hope. Let's take another example, a more difficult one. Caring for an aging parent. Probably something many of us have to do. And again, caging for, caring for an aging parent. We find ourselves in a situation, it's like a riverbank. We have our mother, our father, um, maybe declining, unwell, maybe slipping already into dementia of some kind, um, with enormous needs um, that need to be met, um, with a health service, of course, that supports us. But once again, in a very real sense, you are on your own with this situation. You are faced very often with some very difficult moral decisions. Do I send my mother to a home? Or do we keep her in her own place and get a live-in person? Do I have my father come and live with us? And if we take on that sort of responsibility, we're taking on a potentially a long and difficult journey. We're not probably trained to do this. We have to improvise. We have to be resourceful. Um, it's hard work. But again, because this is someone one loves, it's very rewarding to be able to make that person's life as, as good and as comfortable as it can be in their declining years. Martine and I are the primary carers for her 92-year-old mother. Uh, that's why I bring this example up. It is very much um, a riverbank situation, a crossing the body of water in a fair degree, not a total degree, but to a fair degree in a way that we have to figure this out from hour to hour, from day to day, from week to week. Never quite sure what's going to be around the next corner. <coughs> Writing a book. <laughs> um, when, uh, when I'm at the point of starting a book project, I have the feeling that I can't do this. There's, it's too, there's too many uh, difficulties. There's too much stuff that I don't really understand well. There's too much research to be done. Um, it feels like a Sisyphean task, pushing a, a boulder up a hill. 
Um, but I do it anyway. And this is very much when one is on one's own as a writer or as an artist on a project. Uh, you do it in the solitude of your office or your studio. You go back day after day after day. You sometimes make little progress. You sometimes encounter even more obstacles. And this is before you even try to get it published. And yet you, per you persevere, you persist. And there's a great sense of fulfillment when it goes well. When you start to develop um, a number of chapters that can be read back to back, giving you a glimpse of what the book will be like. It, I find it immensely rewarding, uh, satisfying, fulfilling, and also, more than all of those things, I find I learn a great deal. At the end of every book, I've learned a lot more about the topic, about myself, than I did before I began writing. That's true even on a day-to-day -day basis. At the end of my morning's work, I've learned something as a rule, something I didn't know three hours earlier. Or I've said something or articulated it in a way that I think really captures what I'm trying to say. And I find this immensely fulfilling. But when I get to the end of, the bo of a book, which I've just done, off it goes to the publisher, which I had, did in fact find. And then I find myself on the next riverbank, the next book, which is already starting as a collaboration with a friend who's a biologist. We're going to write a secular dharma and evolutionary biology book. And at the moment, I feel completely daunted by this. It actually makes me feel slightly, I wouldn't say depressed, but um, not very excited. It's such a lot of work that has to be done. And, some, and so much that I have to understand and learn about biology, which I know very little about. But that's what I'm going to do. That's my next raft project. It'll be this book. And so it goes on. So it's helpful, I think, to go back to these kinds of images, the parable of the raft, and to effectively meditate on them. Meditate in the sense of think carefully and deeply about. To allow that image to activate your imagination. And see where it takes you. In my case, it took me recently to this idea of the refugees, which shed quite a bit of light, actually, on many of the other metaphors in Buddhism, like that of taking refuge. It also made me reflect on how life is a continual process of crossing a river, getting to the other shore, leaving behind the previous project, carrying on, and then coming to another riverbank situation. That's life, basically. The parable of the raft is not just talking about the act of leaving home, renunciation, going off on a long journey. It's a way of talking about the actual day-to-day, -day, 
month-to-month experience of, of living a meaningful life. It's a constant process of moving ahead, encountering an obstacle, overcoming the obstacle, and then moving ahead again. That's kind of how our lives unfold. So I hope that has been of some help. Um, The day after tomorrow, I'll talk about the arrow, which will cover many of the same bases, but from a somewhat different perspective. And then in my last talk on Thursday, we'll look at the parable of the city and hopefully be able to tie them all up in a way that allows um, hopefully a greater appreciation of the the potency of these images. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.